This message was presented at the DYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.dycweb.org. Um, have ever received uh, advice from a counselor or a friend, that someone that you should trust or normally would trust, and uh, their kind of response is, I really do know what's going on. I know. There is no doubt about it. I've been told. You know, the Holy Spirit has whispered in my ear, I know what's going on in your life. There's no doubt. <laughs> yes, comment. Yes, you're, you're affirming. <laughs> this has happened. Uh, this this uh, certainly can be one way that uh, well-meaning uh, uh, elders, uh, you know, deacons, elders in the church might come to you, uh, those who uh, seem to have experience and wisdom, and, uh, you know, they're, they're willing to lean heavily on that reputation as senior counselors and say, God, is, you know, I really know what's going on with you, Job. Laying it, and they're laying it on thick. That's my point. Eliphaz lays it on with what I would call elder, elderly thickness. You know, I really know what's going on, Job. You need to admit your error. Um, because of this inner insight that I have. Uh, and then in the second division, uh, uh, Eliphaz, uh, Job chapter 5, uh, he simply, you know, to summarize it, goes on to suggest that, uh, you know, look, uh, irrelevant of where I got it, uh, surely, you know, just following basic common sense logic, Job, uh, you can't play games with God. Uh, you know, this is, uh, a, a, you know, as I said, an intense special suffering of yours. And uh, remember, God has all knowledge and power. So clearly, uh, whether it's through my insight or through just your own reasoning, just recognize the inevitable, Job. Uh, you are suffering because of your sin. You are suffering because of what you have done. Uh, that is why you are in the circumstances that you are. So God has all knowledge and power. And remember that. Uh, that's important to note that the friends recognize that God has all knowledge and power because uh, that will be a theme that's returned to uh, later on. So there's three basic questions, or sorry, not three, but here there's a basic question I want to ask. Uh, is this biblical reasoning? Does it sound like, as I said, common sense, good biblical reasoning? Um, and, well, the answer is, of course, a partial yes. You can definitely find biblical support. Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. This is definitely biblical thinking uh, that has been applied to Job. Uh, you know, you are suffering in a special way, and uh, there's clearly, you know, cause and effect, common sense, uh, orthodox thinking, orthodox theology. There's got to be a reason, Job. Uh, that is why uh, you are suffering. So, but of course, I add a little sort of there because uh, there may be more to the picture than simply um, cause and effect uh, involved in this situation. But it is a very strong, remember, I, the whole purpose of, of uh, starting the way that I did was to uh, exclude the prelude, to cut out the beginning, the prologue, uh, to cut out uh, what uh, we know to leave Job and his friends where they were without any special insight. So to really understand how you might really grapple with it. Uh, so here again is uh, Job's three friends, uh, his wife, and uh, their theology. Job's reply in uh, chapter 6 is, Oh, that my vexation were weighed, and all my calamity uh, laid in the balances, for then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. 
Therefore my words have been indeed rash, and he's here referencing back to his beginning, you know, that I, you know, I wish I could die. Uh, definitely I have uh, begun to, uh, you know, question God. Uh, definitely I don't know what God is doing. Um, and so Job acknowledges that he has been strong and emotional in his language. There's no doubt that Job uh, admits that, uh, you know, he is confused. Uh, he admits that he's been speaking very strongly, but uh, to summarize the viewer where I am, you'd understand my sorrow is so terrible uh, that it gives me a justified good reason to complain. Continuing uh, to the responses, and again, I cannot read them all um, in their highly poetic language. It is worth uh, trying to actually sit through and read Job uh, in a, a long afternoon uh, to try and reflect on, on how they, they reason it through and their poetic style. Uh, but Bildad, uh, the bold one, remember he's more blunt uh, and straightforward. Uh, Job, how long will you say such things? Your words are a blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. Remember how uh, yesterday I had mentioned that uh, the children would come back into play. Remember they died at the, uh, the end of the, the first day of his suffering. And his friends, in their uh, very considerate way, bring that to, to his mind. You know, they're trying to really you know, poke him. Imagine if you've suffered a loss of a family member. Um, and then you are suffering yourself, uh, you know, due to other related, you know, circumstances. And your friend comes to you and says, you know, look, your family died because of their sin. And now you, you're on your near deathbed yourself. Uh, and you're going to die too if you don't take this opportunity to repent. If you don't take this, this chance, uh, you're going to end where they did. You know, how would that come across? My goodness. Uh, ooh, that is, that is rough, rough language. But if you will look to God and plead with the Almighty... If you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your rightful place. This is a temptation, my friends. This is a temptation. Understand, uh, understanding the story as you do. Uh, this, is, this is definitely a very strong appeal uh, for Job to change his tune uh, and think differently about what is happening. Uh, and the circumstances definitely warrant it. The circumstances definitely would seem to warrant it. The, the, uh, the weight of the council of the elders has come down from the church, and this is what they say. They all claim to know and believe uh, about God. They all know, uh, claim inner insight, uh, think through their reasoning as it spirals stronger and stronger. They are telling Job that they know what's going on, and they're giving him the path towards redemption. They're offering him uh, a ticket to what they believe will restore him. But Job maintains, this is uh, from a little bit earlier, but uh, his, his tone remains, Teach me and I would be silent and I will be silent. Make me understand how I have erred. How forceful are honest words. You've been honest with me. But what does reproof from you reprove? What does your reproof reprove? There, I, I can admit of nothing. I can admit of nothing. Yes, the suffering appears to be special. It appears to be singularly, you know, isolated uh, and, uh, you know, to me. And it appears that uh, it has come through divine, uh, you know, definitely through divine something, uh, divine participation somehow. Uh, but, you know, what does your reproof reprove? Before this, this God that we all are, are maintaining a belief in, uh, I, I know of nothing in me. I know of nothing that would warrant this. 
Uh, and as we'll note later, Job doesn't claim absolute lifetime perfection of any sort, but he, he is saying, I, I, you know, I, have, I have lived a life of integrity uh, to myself. Uh, when I have made mistakes, I have, uh, you know, I have always repented of them you know, as, as soon as I became aware of them. There is, there is nothing in me that seems to warrant what is going on. This is too extreme. This, does not, uh, this is not fair. This is not just. Uh, according to all measures of, of you know, how justice should work. What does your reproof reprove? There is nothing in me. Uh, he, he says, I, I cannot, I cannot. Uh, here he is uh, defending himself. <laughs> you know, why me? Why me? You, know, you guys are all lecturing me. You wag your fingers, but I, I, I cannot see it. I cannot see what you are asking me to do. Zophar's argument, just to jump ahead a little bit, they all do take their turns uh, in their powerful, uh, poetic uh, ways. Um, but uh, we'll turn, in fact, the, the sequence of this one in chapter 20 comes after one of Job's uh, strongest self-defenses, uh, and we'll come back to that uh, later. But uh, Zophar uh, continues to hammer him time after time. You know, again, this takes, you know, goes on for I don't know how long their conversations took place. Uh, and what else, you know, what other words may have been shared um, uh, in, their, in their discussions with each other, their, their speeches. Uh, but uh, Zophar continues, you know, imagine this, as I said, this is a later, later argument, just going to Zophar's later uh, talks, but, you know, it just kind of continues to spiral and spiral. They, it just escalates, escalates, escalates. Um, and Zophar describes the wicked as doing things that are clearly uh, apparent. The evil comes out into the open. Obviously, uh, Zophar suggests that because Job has gone through this time of torment, uh, with these awful boils breaking out upon him, it is evident that his evil too is coming out into the open. Um, as he shares in Job 20, utter darkness is hid up for the wicked. That is their treasure. Um, the heavens will reveal his iniquity. Uh, there is no doubt that uh, the, the wicked will not be able to hide what they have done. And the earth will rise up against the wicked ones. This is the wicked man's portion from God, the heritage decreed for him by God. Uh, this is again after Job has made multiple at this point already, more than one, self-defense saying, I, I just don't see it in me. I don't see anything worthy of what is happening. And Zophar hammers him. This is, you know, what you are, in here, you know, what you are su suffering through, what you are experiencing is the wicked man's portion. Don't think that you can hide from this co obvious conclusion. That is, uh, again, just a sample of uh, Zophar's arguments. So I want to, um, again, kind of put together the three friends theology. Uh, and note that I think one of the benefits of this book is indeed uh, not only to uh, note the discussion of its great central theme found in the beginning, chapters one, uh, with kind of the, the prologue, the uh, behind the curtain perspective, but I also think that uh, the reason that the rest of this book does exist, and there isn't just one simple ver argument from each person, uh, you know, Eliphaz, uh, Bildad, and Zophar, but that it actually shows, and uh, Moses was inspired by God to write it out in full, uh, to see this spiraling escalation through these differing personalities, all reflecting the same theology. So it kind of, you know, there is uh, more than one way to express the same flaw. That's really uh, what I see here. Um, and I think you can summarize it, as a few have done, as a, a, an early version. Of course, this is uh, uh, outside the uh, uh, covenant line. This is outside of Abraham and uh, far bef long before there were any Pharisees. But it is, it, it is kind of a Pharisaism, uh, a legalism uh, that um, you see expressed here, uh, even though it comes, of course, much later. Uh, 
Uh, and what that always leans toward, what the Pharisees' attitude always leans toward, was a sort of orthodox, common-sense uh, theology that was without true godliness. Um, it can have an appearance of being correct at times, an overwhelming appearance you know, of being correct at times. It definitely can appear to be true um, because it, it has elements of truth in it. Uh, but to be, um, and it can even include, as I uh, note, uh, you know, righteousness and outward behavior. But it actually represents a distortion of the truth. And this is very important uh, to keep in mind. I want to give a summary of part two before I share uh, a little setup for part three, uh, where I will uh, give a little bit more of Job's uh, responses and thinking uh, to what's going on. But it's what I see happening in the dialogues of, of Job and with his uh, friends and their arguments is that in different ways, the three friends all insist that Job is somehow deserving of his suffering. Um, and again, in different ways is important. Uh, so friends can come to us in different ways and uh, through expressing all the, the varieties of human personalities and styles and perspectives, uh, all through what I would call the, the common sense way of thinking, um, and yet uh, they all can arrive at the same conclusion, uh, a wrong one. Job's suffering is undoubtedly intense and unusual, and that's important uh, because whenever you are actually experiencing something that has a special kind of intensity or seems to be truly standing out um, such that it would warrant this kind of uh, these attacks, um, you know, you're going to find this kind of questioning. Uh, this is natural. This is not just average suffering. This is not just the day-to-day -day suffering. This is not uh, anything of that sort. This is not a cause and effect suffering of a direct sort. As I said, I take uh, drugs and, and ruin my mind and, and then I end up uh, uh, you know, living a life that was very different than the one before. But this is not like that. This is, uh, you know, seemingly unwarranted coming from the outside and uh, is uh, intense and unusual, making him especially prone. That's the point to emphasize, making him especially prone to uh, his friend's attacks because uh, they're laying it on thick. They have the weight of the, uh, of the theology behind them. They uh, claim uh, insight into his situation. Um, and uh, that makes him especially prone to their attacks given the nature of his suffering. They also importantly invoke God's power and knowledge. Um, and uh, this is of course uh, true. Many of the friends throughout their poetic uh, attacks on Job say have many isolated true statements. You can quote a lot of the friends and come up with a lot of correct theology. A lot of correct things are said about God throughout, dispersed throughout their poetic uh, attacks on him. They say a lot of true things, and that's important to note. Nevertheless, Job resists this strongly, uh, that it, uh, by implication, all their true statements lead up to the fact that he has done something worthy of, uh, you know, their, this special punishment. Uh, and the fact that he keeps resisting, uh, keeps raising the stakes as the friends keep, you know, cycling, circling, spinning, uh, you know, upward in their intensity of their uh, critique on him. Uh, so the friends strengthen their attacks uh, as Job, you know, begins to defend himself. So again, uh, that's why uh, you can definitely uh, see an evolving state of mind in Job from his initial, you know, woe is me uh, to uh, now wait a minute, <laughs> you know, I, yes, woe is me. But, um, you know, I, I have, you know, he had this desire to defend himself because he could not acknowledge that he had done anything worthy of this. Uh, and, of course, it is important to note that there is a logic to the f three friends' arguments. Sometimes what they say is true, 
Uh, sometimes it can be that special suffering is the resp uh, response of God to, uh, as a judgment, and you will find biblical examples of that with other kinds of individuals when God does judge uh, both individuals and people groups. So there can be a time when special suffering is a judgment of God, um, although he usually makes it uh, more clear to the individual and does point them towards the right path. But again, in this circumstance, in this situation, you can imagine not knowing any other uh, circumstances, not knowing God's perspective, um, that for Job himself, with his friends claiming insight into God's perspective, uh, how intense his suffering really was at this point, even more than the uh, uh, health and wealth uh, trials that he'd gone through earlier. The real trial of Job is not the fact that his health and wealth were taken away from him. It's the fact that he was accused of being deserving of losing his health and wealth, that he deserved to lose it because of something that he had done specifically wrong. That is why uh, Job suffered the most. This is the intensity uh, of his suffering. So what mattered to him more clearly I think, and the fact that he keeps defending himself means there is something that matters more. There is something that matters more to Job, and there is something that matters perhaps more to someone else uh, than the fact that he has suffered the loss of health and wealth. There is something else. Um, and again, I just uh, noting that the friends all focus on, and this is very important uh, to also remember, they focus on the externals of religion and life and not what is inside the heart. Um, although they are talking about what they think is inside Job's heart, uh, they're focusing on the external consequences, uh, apparent consequences. They're focusing on the outside to look inside. So they're viewing the inside through the lens of the outside and not uh, the other way around or some other uh, through uh, some other method. I want to um, prepare you a little bit for tomorrow's uh, conclusion where I really do try and offer a, a new way of thinking about some of these questions on theodicy and trying to understand a little bit more about God's perspective and how we can relate it and understand it within uh, a great controversy context. Um, but I want to give a little bit of a, a word study for you. Um, and uh, give an opportunity to stretch our minds uh, in a little bit of a different way. And if you have your Bibles, I will make this portion a little bit participatory. Uh, and I would like uh, to uh, have a, a, a little bit of a, a word study opportunity. Um, that's one of the, the privileges that those of us who spend some time at seminary or studying theology uh, get to do is to, to dig in a little bit to the Greek and the Hebrew and to try and glean some extra insight into uh, the way that God chose to inspire uh, his, uh, the Bible. And uh, sometimes you do learn some, some neat things. So uh, I would actually like, if you have it, and, and we can take turns reading it, uh, I'd, I'd like to hear from you a little bit, uh, your voices. Um, and I don't know, someone from over here, you can raise your hand. Someone choose Joshua 3.5 uh, and read it. We'll take uh, this gentleman in the, the front. And to someone on the left, uh, and I won't read them all, uh, but I just want to just you know, demonstrate or establish the pattern. And someone from over here, read uh, Genesis 18:14, um, and then maybe we'll start, you know, share just a couple of more. But sure, Joshua 3:5. You remember the context of Joshua as he was preparing the people for, uh, you know, part of the, the conquest? Um, and what kind of wonders, that's the word we're looking at here, wonders and miracles is the translation. Uh, what kind of uh, wonders are we expecting through this word? What would you call that? What happened because of Joshua's 
re, uh, you know, uh, request here and, and his appeal to the people. Uh, well, this is, uh, yes, this is for, yes, that too, there are many wonders. And yes, the, the parting of the Jordan um, and the, the entire conquest, yes. So, so what are we looking at? The, what kind of, of uh, an event? A miracle. We're looking at what everyone would call a miracle, right? Exactly. We're looking at something that is definitely what you would call a, a physical miracle, right? A physical miracle, something that is really tangible. Uh, Genesis 18:14. Someone who, uh, over here who has it, anyone? Who has a Bible? All right. You remember the uh, story of Sarah and Abram and uh, uh, their difficult uh, child uh, conception process? Uh, what does the angel of the Lord say to them? That at the appointed time, or what does he say? He says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, the Hebrew word in both of these two verses that we've just read uh, is palah. That's, that's the root there, palah. And it means a wonderful thing, depending on what translation you have in English. It means wonder. It means a miracle. Is anything too difficult uh, you know, for the Lord? Um, and, of course, what is that? Uh, you know, that's a miracle we call the, the birth of Isaac, a, a miracle. Um, is anything too difficult for the Lord? You could go through uh, the rest of these passages. Um, in fact, let's read a couple more. I just, I really want to get, get the pattern. Uh, would someone read uh, from over here as well that has a Bible? Psalms 106, verse 22. Does someone else have a Bible? Any, any volunteers? Or anyone, either side, either side. Terrible things by the Red Sea. And what do you think of when you think back to the Red Sea? You think of deliverance and you think of you know, great physical you know, miracles uh, that helped uh, you know, uh, deliver the people. Um, exactly so. Um, miracles. Exodus 3.20. Anyone else? Anyone? All right, you recall uh, what uh, God did for the people of Israel uh, to the uh, Egyptians. Do you remember the series of plagues, the ten plagues that uh, God used to deliver the people and to you know, tell Egypt that uh, uh, the, the people of God, the uh, Hebrew people, were ready to be delivered? Uh, what would you call those, those ten plagues? Would you call them just uh, ordinary events, you know, just random occurrences? No, no, no. We can't call them random occurrences. Those uh, ten plagues definitely represented what you would call a miracle. We would call these classical miracles in every sense of how we use the word. Um, let's read uh, another one, uh, Exodus 15:11. Just again establishing the use of the word, the use Hebrew of the Hebrew word palah. Exodus 15:11. Someone else. And doing wonders. When you read that verse doing wonders. What are you thinking about? The God that works miracles, right? The God that works miracles. Um, that's, that cannot be explained. That's right. They cannot be easily explained. They are definitely uh, interferences into the normal flow of cause and effect. In other words, you cannot uh, trace a cause to this other than God. You cannot trace it as just the, the random flows. It's unfortunate that um, a lot of critics of the Bible 
uh, today, you know, we call them higher critics, criti you know, historical critical scholars trying to reconstruct uh, how the Bible was written, assuming that God did not write it. Um, and unfortunately, this has even infected some versions of what we call liberal Christianity. Um, in fact, uh, to be perfectly honest with you, for your educational purposes, it has even infected some Seventh-day Adventists. Uh, who are in our church ranks uh, at various uh, you know, places, um, who have begun to want to rebuild the Old Testament as a book without any miracles, as containing no miracles. Um, and what they try and do is they try and trace all of the occurrences of wonders in the Old Testament as uh, random, you know, naturally caused events. Uh, you can look at, remember, when God uh, gave kind of against his original intentions. He didn't really want to do it, but when he gave them the, the, the birds, the quails to eat, you remember, and uh, this was a miracle. It's described as a miracle, but, uh, you know, um, uh, <laughs> some of these uh, liberal Christians will try and say, well, you know, they try and, well, that was just a, an ordinary, uh, you know, bird flock that came by at the appropriate season, and, uh, you know, it was all, you know, all just completely natural. There was, God had nothing to do with it. Uh, the, the parting of the Red Sea, uh, they even go so far as to try and explain that one away as, as uh, you know, some sort of uh, wind or you know, something you know, natural, you know, something totally natural. There was no, no God involvement at all. There was no wonder. There was no divine wonder going on here. There was no physical miracle that uh, was outside of the natural order of cause and effect. Um, and I could go through uh, the rest of these uh, verses, and many of them are references back, like from the Psalms, you know, 86, 96, and, and 77, 78. They're referencing back to Egypt, because throughout the rest of the Old Testament, there is something that's very consistent, uh, and that is the importance of uh, the Israelites' early history. And uh, so you'll see repeated references back to the Red Sea and Egypt and the plagues uh, throughout the Psalms, and they all call them. These are all occurrences. These verses all have for the, whatever the English word may be in that situation or that, you know, that verse or your translation, but it's all the same Hebrew word, the same, same Hebrew word. So you're, you can detect the pattern of how uh, the biblical writers uh, were choosing their words. And they're all wonders, miracles, uh, difficult things, you know, things of that nature. And all of them, over 70 times that this word occurs in the Old Testament, it always means, uh, in these, except for a couple of exceptions, it always means a physical miracle. It always means something like the Red Sea. It always means something uh, powerful like the, the birth of a child that just could not happen, uh, you know, without uh, divine intervention. It could not happen without a miracle. And, um, or a wonder, you know, the, the English word again, wonderful things, uh, as I'll, I'll note. Um, I choose, uh, chose, because I uh, did borrow this from uh, some other context in which I've shared this, uh, the Egyptian ancient history thing, although it ties into Job's time period as well, because the Egyptian kingdom, although not for Tutankhamun here, but um, uh, Egypt was already rising as a power uh, during these times, before Moses uh, wrote it, uh, Egypt was already beginning to rise. And in a world without miracles, um, I just want to note that there is always greed and selfish ambition. What is the most wonderful thing for the atheist secular mind? Uh, and it is no doubt going to be wealth, health and wealth, right? That's what's the most important thing is health and wealth. That's what's wonderful about life. That's the miracle of the atheist's life is health and wealth. You know, if you have given away, taken away God out of your life, uh, the miracle of life, the wonderful things, the pala of life for the atheist is health and wealth. And uh, I think that the Egyptian pharaohs uh, definitely enjoyed some of that. You can enjoy their, uh, their rather lavish uh, lifestyle for their situation, life, and context. I don't think most of us um, have uh, burial chambers prepared for us that look like this. 
um, that uh, are covered with gold and, and we were so highly revered during our lives, even if they were short, uh, like this boy king, Tutankhamun. Uh, but uh, these represent the, the, you know, kind of the atheist's wonders of the world. And uh, since I come from, again, uh, my choice of choosing uh, this kind of archaeological connection is, is I do come from that background. Uh, I have enjoyed seeing these all in person. And uh, it is very impressive to witness the wealth of the ancient world and the wonders of uh, their lifestyle. And this is, this is Moses' world, just giving you a quick insight into, as I uh, mentioned last time, uh, the author of Job. Uh, this is the world that he would have seen, the wonders of his world. Um, as an example, these two to Hong Kong is, is later and, and after Moses' time, but uh, still it is uh, interesting to see some of the uh, sample wealth of the English world sitting on the, the throne. Uh, it kind of changes your uh, mindset about life when you sit down on that chair every day, doesn't it? Uh, I always wondered about that. For all royalty, just as a little footnote, I have to note that whenever you have been to uh, the palaces uh, in uh, France or anywhere else, Versailles, you know, you, you go to these places and you, you go into their bedrooms uh, covered with gold you know, walls and you wonder, would I think about myself differently if I woke up there? You know? Um, I always wonder about that, the, the ego thing. But, you know, that ties into the Job situation because do you think about yourself differently depending on the circumstances of how you woke up, how your health and wealth are lined up. When you wake up and you see this waiting for you, uh, you know, uh, to come sit down here, you're going to think of yourself as uh, rather blessed. Clearly, you're living the good life. God has uh, divinely uh, blessed you, and so therefore you are uh, royal, and, and God has uh, ordained this, and thus and thus. And uh, that's kind of the opposite of Job. That's, that's why this ties in nicely. This is the opposite. If you're sitting here, you're going to be thinking the opposite of what Job is, is uh, friends, you know, as, as Job was, was feeling. However, I have to note that on the health and wealth uh, footnote, uh, was Tutankhamun impressed uh, at his being discovered? No. Why? Why was he not impressed? Because he was dead, <laughs> you know. There is no Tutankhamun to enjoy uh, being discovered and uh, at the wonders, there's uh, the neat story of when his uh, tomb was discovered, Howard Carter, um, uh, when they had first, you know, broken through and they were peeling back uh, the, the unopened, unrobbed. Remember, most of the Egyptian tombs have been plundered in, in antiquity, meaning after they were buried, but in the intermediate time between modern times, uh, you know, various robbers and, and burglars have gone in and, and stolen it, uh, despite the, the curses that uh, they placed over their, <laughs> over their tombs. But um, uh, it's neat because um, when, when they first uh, discovered it and uh, his uh, you know, workers were, were trying to you know, break through and they had a flashlight you know, there and they were looking in uh, back uh, you know, uh, many years ago, um, this century, last century. But um, when they first looked in, uh, the uh, uh, archaeologist said, you know, Howard Carter was kind of behind them. You know, he had his front man there actually breaking through, the, the pickaxe man, and those that actually do the real work, not the, the chief men. But um, he asked him, what do you see? What do you see? You know, they've broken into this un unopened tomb. And uh, the words from his uh, worker were, I see wonderful things. I see wonderful things. So I see, you know, miracles, the atheist, the archaeologist, miracle. I see wonderful things. So uh, they had found, uh, again, the, uh, the dream of, of any worldly person. They had found the wonders. They had found the wealth. They had uh, made their careers as archaeologists and would enjoy it forever. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. That's. <laughs> yep. Yep. 
that is lasting. And we'll come to why that is so important. Um, we will continue to uh, remind ourselves of that. But exactly, this is the, uh, the worldly persons, the atheist miracle, so just to put it in context uh, for some people. But there is one more kind of palah, over 72 occurrences of the Hebrew word palah. However, there are about uh, three or four uh, exceptions that uh, do not follow the normal mold. That's a pretty small minority. We're talking you know, around 5% of the occurrences that don't follow the normal mold of how the word is used, which is always Red Sea, uh, the birth of a child that could not be born otherwise, miracles, okay? The palah always means a wonder, a divine wonder. But there is one exception, one special exception that is worth dwelling upon that will help, uh, I think, connect us tomorrow to uh, common sense and theology and theodicy. Psalms 119, verses 15 to 20 for the full context. The psalmist says, I will meditate on thy precepts and regard thy ways. I shall delight in thy statutes. I shall not forget thy word. Deal bountifully with thy servant that I may live and keep thy word. Open my eyes that I may behold Palah things from thy law, that I may behold miracles from your law, miracles from your law. I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide thy commandments from me. My soul is crushed with longing after thine ordinances at all times, at all times. I hope the meaning and significance of this exception to the inspired writer's use of this special word, palah, can begin to sprinkle through, you know, percolate through your minds on why God would choose to call His law as the container of miracles. Have you ever thought about that? That God's law is the, the box you see, the Ark of the Covenant, with the Ten Commandments inside, and what is inside is a miracle. What is inside the box is a miracle. Think about that. For it is God which worketh in you to both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Let's take this miracle context a little bit further. The miracle working power of Christ's grace is revealed in the creation in man of a new heart, a higher life, a holier enthusiasm. God says, a new heart also will I give you. Ezekiel 36, 26. Is not this the renewal of man, the greatest miracle that can be performed? What, human, what cannot the human agent do who by faith takes hold of the divine power? Human effort avails nothing without divine power, and without human endeavor, divine effort is, uh, is with many of no avail. There is a two-way relationship. Continuing, these are Ellen White quotations. As you may know, this is from Acts of the Apostles. The profane have become reverent, the drunken sober, the profligate pure. Souls that have borne the likeness of Satan have been transformed into the image of God. This change is in itself the miracle of miracles. A change wrought by the Word, it is one of the deepest mysteries of the Word. We cannot understand it. We can only believe, as declared by the Scriptures, it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I had to collect them because they're so powerful. Christ's love in the heart revealing through the life its wondrous power. This is the greatest miracle that can be performed before a fallen, quarreling world. Think back to Joshua's uh, question you know, and reminder to the people of Israel. Prepare yourselves. In fact, but prior to that, if you may uh, recall, that uh, remember Joshua, um, in fact, actually, I didn't read that one, but uh, Gideon, I didn't read that verse. Apologies for that. But in uh, Judges 
Um, uh, Gideon uh, also has uh, the question, you know, when uh, there has been a time of, of silence uh, prior to uh, the deliverance of, of the people and, and the, their uh, uh, coming in to the, the promised land, but they've been, they've been oppressed. And uh, Gideon wonders, you know, he asks, where are the miracles of our fathers? He asks that exact question, where are the palah of our fathers? Uh, we, are, we are now, as the people of Israel, we're now you know, living in down times and, and down circumstances, and where are the miracles of our fathers? Um, and so just keep in mind that uh, this question is, is a common one to the Christian mind. Gideon asked it, and uh, many others of, of us, I think we all can ask this question. Where are the miracles of our fathers? Where we're looking for uh, too often, looking to, you know, for the Red Sea. I want a Red Sea parting in my life. Then I will understand uh, that God is at work. Then I will understand what God's miracles are about when I have a Red Sea parting, when I have some other kind of uh, physical miracle. But we are reminded through this exception uh, of the use and Ellen White's understanding uh, or you know comments on the general uh, reaction to this exception that uh, this is a wondrous power this is the greatest miracle that can be performed before a fallen quarreling world let us try to work this miracle that's right you are called to be miracle workers did you know that you are all called there is no exceptions there is no exception to the Christians you are all called to be miracle workers let us try to work this miracle, not in our own power, but in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose we are and whom we serve. Let us put on Christ, and the miracle-working power of His grace will be so plainly revealed in the transformation of character that the world will be convinced that God has sent His Son into the world to make men as angels. You know, I was reflecting on our theme here, you know, before men and angels. Uh, but what are we actually asked to do? To make men as angels in character and life. Some may say, if we believe the Bible, continuing from uh, Spirit of Prophecy, why does not the Lord work miracles for us? This was exactly Gideon's question. If we, if, uh, he will, if we will let him, when a human mind is allowed to come. And I love this quote when I found it, because uh, I remember yesterday, uh, if you were here for, for the, part one, uh, the second time uh, repeating part one, um, I talked about uh, the context of... of um, uh, psychology and psychiatry and neuroscience and how common sense is leading us into some paradoxes and contradictions on how to understand human free will and uh, the laws of, of, of uh, biochemistry in, in our mind um, and how psychiatry as a discipline is crumbling because of this uh, pressure. Uh, but uh, listen to this. He will, if we will let him, when a human mind is allowed to come under the control of God, that mind will reveal the miracle working power of God. The power of the mind in action is like the miracle-working power of God. That is Ellen White. The, mind, the power of the mind in action is like the miracle-working power of God. That is amazing. That is unbelievable. <laughs> that is unbelievable. That's right. When your mind is working and God is with you and you are working with God, that is a miracle. The mind working is a miracle by definition of what a miracle is. Unbelievers have inquired, why are not miracles wrought among those who claim to be God's people? Brethren, the greatest miracle that can be wrought is the conversion of the human heart. We need to be reconverted, losing sight of self and human ideas, and beholding Christ, that we may be transformed into His likeness. When this, the greatest of all miracles, is wrought within our hearts, we shall see the working of other miracles. One more as uh, we close here, a couple minutes, and then now we can open in, uh, for a few comments or questions. God cannot work through us miraculously while we are 
unconverted. It would spoil us, for we would take it as an evidence that we were perfect before him. Our first work is to become perfect in his sight by living faith, claiming the promise of his forgiveness. Ask what ye will. This is for the, the broader context. Not Job, by the way, in the, the special sense, but Christ declared to his disciples, and it shall be done unto you. I'm going to end there with that thought and uh, keep that in mind, uh, that um, we need to redefine our understanding of miracles outside of the, the normal way that we think about the cause and effect relationships in the world. Um, and this will tie in very directly to how uh, Job should be understood and how the climax of Job uh, and how it relates to the great controversy really comes together. And, and uh, I'll share that uh, tomorrow for Sabbath. Uh, we'll call it our, our, the Sabbath afternoon uh, session. And uh, I will uh, begin to try and tie together new ways of thinking about some of these very difficult uh, questions of human suffering and uh, what really mattered to God, what the real test is for Job, and what the real test is for all of us as we struggle through the health and wealth and other struggles and circumstances that uh, life may, may share for us. Are there any uh, comments or uh, anything of that sort, questions or, or anything else? I will open it for you. Um, we have a couple of minutes before uh, the session concludes. Yes? A path that was not available to the followers, huh? apparently. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Egyptians. <laughs> um, yeah, I've, I've heard that too. You know, the, I, I don't want to deny, just, just to be clear, that God can't work in uh, uh, seemingly invisible or transparent ways that may not always be manifestly a miracle. Of course, God can work in any way that he wants. Um, but uh, that would be quite a miracle to drown all the Egyptians in two feet of water in their chariots uh, riding up high. But, um, you know, if God wanted to do it that way, I wouldn't complain, although I don't think he did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. You don't. You don't. That's a lesson. That is a good, a good lesson. We need to be very careful. Thank you uh, for that, that story. Any other comments? Yes.
there, there are some lessons to that. I'll, I'll re, uh, come return to them a little bit um, next time uh, in part three, uh, because I will include a little bit of Job's, Job's attitude and how far he really does go. Uh, you know, he, he goes all the way to the edge. I mean, he's standing on the precipice uh, and uh, accuses God of uh, being too involved, <laughs> you know, from the, in the wrong way. And, and we'll see that. And that's uh, Jesus. You know, Jesus is uh, the Job, no doubt about it. Jesus uh, experienced uh, the Jobian uh, suffering. Uh, so he is uh, the example. Uh, yes? Mm-hmm. I'm wondering your thoughts on that, if free will, because obviously, like you, like you said, a lot of people kind of make it seem with the secular uh, psychology, so there's no free will or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but then how the Bible says, you know, we're saved by grace and everything, it almost seems as though we have no free will until God, by his grace, allows us to choose. I'm just kind of yeah, uh, those are great questions. Um, I don't think that we have absolute or clear answers that can be given. Um, obviously, I do believe that, uh, uh, that human beings uh, do have freedom given to them, uh, but uh, there is a, 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 a desire amongst most to always try and reduce or simplify into absolute freedom, what uh, is often called like enlightenment or autonomous freedom. Uh, where the human being is totally and wholly in control uh, and the body is kind of just this thing, you know, that is there and separate and so forth and the mind-body relationship is kind of uh, severed or, t- you know, taken to be so distant uh, that uh, there's really no connection. On the other hand, um, uh, you know, if you do accept a more of a mind-body relationship, uh, which I, I think is the Adventist position, a close relationship between mind and body, that's why health is so important to us, the health message, um, then, uh, you know, they will begin to come together. But uh, that doesn't mean that uh, law-orderedness uh, is ultimately, um, as we understand typical law-orderedness, as I said, simple cause and effect, that there isn't still going to be a problem there. Uh, and understanding the role of the Holy Spirit um, in the human mind, in the, uh, uh, the unbeliever and in the believer, um, you know, is, is very complex. I do think that uh, true freedom, real freedom, uh, only comes for the one who is believing in God, uh, meaning authentic freedom. And I'll uh, talk a little bit more about that next time and what real authentic freedom is about, because that's related to the great controversy theme and what real freedom really is. Uh, but of course, there is a limited or secondary freedom that is uh, granted to uh, the sinner or the one who is, you know, uh, either um, knowingly or willingly or unknowingly living, uh, you know, in violation of, you know, the laws of God. Um, they still do have some kind of freedom. Um, however, um, uh, you know, is it more of a freedom of the will uh, that uh, they are given to choose between certain, you know, as, as God, you know, presents them in their life with, you know, opportunities to follow greater light? versus simply uh, a freedom to uh, enjoy, you know, and like what they want. In other words, uh, you know, the, the sinful desires that we are all born with uh, are not part of our, you know, our, our freedom. You know, we are slaves. We are slaves to sin. We are, we are not autonomously free. That must be rejected. Uh, but, but, you know, the, the, uh, it's more of a, a very paradoxical gradient of, of what kinds of freedom and how the Holy Spirit is right. I, There are no easy answers. Um, and I'm not going to pretend that there are, but, uh, but they are offered, and I think that we should reject all the easy solutions. Uh, it's, it's very complicated, but I do believe in, in freedom. Yes. Any other? Mm-hmm. When you talk about the sex and position, mm-hmm. the, the, the medical community believes that they can set people free by using a medication. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Drugs are freedom in this case. Right. And, you, and, and they're pushing these medications, like mm-hmm. they that's right. They do interfere with the chemical imbalances. And sometimes they seem to help. Sometimes they seem to help. But yeah. what is happening is, in the last days, if these mm-hmm. people are not given the choice that Jesus is the only one who can free them mentally and 
That's right. And they will not be free. Note that uh, your comment and the mind-body relationship uh, and the context of Job and what is really going on in the health and wealth versus the moral dimension that uh, will be talked about more in the next time, but that there are, are different levels of freedom. Uh, there is uh, what we would call uh, just a, a simple, you know, physical freedoms and, uh, you know, freedom, by the way, is such a huge topic, political freedom, you know, uh, all kinds of understandings of what freedom is, positive freedom, negative freedom, the freedom to uh, do what I want, the freedom, you know, so forth. So um, there's lots of different kinds of freedom, but, uh, but there are two major ones that have been highlighted, and that is uh, what we would call a, 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 a clear mind freedom. Uh, and a clear mind freedom, the health message, is not the same thing as moral freedom. Once you have embraced the law and are understanding and are living your life in harmony with God's law, that is a new kind of freedom that is different from simply uh, using the health message or using uh, the occasional and, and cautious, because uh, I have a cautious approach towards psychiatry and, and those medicines. There's a lot of harm there, uh, but on occasion, I don't want to say 100% bad. I think we shouldn't take these absolutes that we usually try to in our human minds, simplify everything. I like to take a little bit more of a complex picture, but, um, uh, but, but that kind of freedom, no matter how you slice and dice uh, the issue of the, of the mind and the mind-body freedom and the health message, um, is a little bit different than the moral dimension. And so the health and wealth part of freedom, and you can see that as kind of a political freedom, you know, wealth, you know, or the desire to do what we want and live our lives the way that we want, and the health uh, are the actual mind and how it's free to, to think and do, uh, you know, what it wants to do, uh, are separate dimensions of the uh, moral freedom, which uh, is, is another whole part of the picture, and a very important one that uh, we'll see next time. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.